You are listening to Boku no Stop, the anime podcast that is the audio equivalent of a hyperart Thomason. I am your host, Matt Marcus, and my pronouns are he, him, and with me is... Sybil Arnett, she, her. And today, we're talking about Flip Flappers, the whole series. Uh, just kind of a wrap-up episode for anything we were not prepared to cover or were too tired to cover at the end of the last episode, because, boy, that was a that was a slog. Uh, so I don't know if we're going to have any content warnings for this batch other than just talking about the themes, um, which bad takes, bad takes. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, uh, first to start off with a few things that we missed during the coverage of the episodes, uh, because either we didn't spoil ourselves or just, I, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that I had read in the past and didn't want to reread before recording the podcast so that my takes were fresher, or at least like more of my own. Uh, so a few things. Um, the first one is that we forgot to mention that in episode four, Kokona does have a wish when it comes to collecting the shards of pure illusion. She said she wanted to uh, meet her family, which... I think at the time I said, funny thing about that, because uh, it turns out she was hanging out with her dad and collecting pieces of her mom. Go figure. But uh, we said in the last episode that we didn't know what her wish was, and that was not true. It's just that the show didn't foreground it. Like, they didn't bring it back up. And, I mean, if you remember that, then some things make sense, but it definitely didn't feel that way in the moment when we were... uh, Rewatching those episodes and uh, recording about it. So anyway, that's the first thing. The second is kind of one that breaks the continuity of the show. And that's the the painting in the hallway is not just a creepy forest. That is actually the shot of Mimi lying in the river in pure illusion after she gets defeated by the flip flap girls like you can actually see her lying in the river. There's like little bits of white. It's you can't tell it's a person from the shots that we see. But when you compare that picture to the image that we see in episode, I think it's 11. It's really direct. And none of that makes any sense because I don't know how Uruhairidori would have been channeling something that is a future image of what was to come to pass. This isn't a time loop story. Doesn't make any sense. I don't know what well, your thoughts are. It's because on that, we Sybil. stole the uh we stole the shard out of her subconscious. But like that painting existed at the beginning of the show. So, I mean, maybe Iridori like got that image in a dream through pure illusion being tied to I don't even I don't know. <laughs> It doesn't it make any feels... sense. I just throw it as uh, there was a connection to Mimi. Then when that's gone, her influence was gone. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that was something that like, I didn't even notice that second time through this show. Like I had to read this in a blog post and be like, oh, yeah. Shot for shot. That's really direct. Uh, so episode six, the one where we go into uh, Roja's memories the girls find a rock wrapped with a rope, and that's the thing they touch to open up the memory gate. And uh, This is a very specific thing. Like, I, I knew it had to be something that we just didn't recognize. And uh, what it is, is a Sekimorishi, 
which is a thing that tea houses would use to signify that the place was closed for an event. It basically said, stop, don't go past here. And so that's clearly the line between, hey, this is just pure illusion. And then you're crossing over into another plane where things are a little bit more private. So that makes logical sense. Um, I think it also kind of makes sense because it makes a lot of symbolic sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tons of it. And tying that with things like, you know, the fact that Iroha is an art student or like, you know, someone who creates she's an artist. Like her name is actually very art related. Uh, I think her last name has something to do with color theory and her first name is the name of a like famous poem that's about art and sort of the, you know, about how things are like transient and like don't last forever. Like beauty doesn't last forever. So like there's a lot of meaning baked into that, that you may have known (laughs) if you were a Japanese viewer. Uh, So that's a nice detail. There's a ton of language of flower stuff in here. I don't know if you want to take over some of the symbol, but like, yeah, absolutely. I'll swap out here for a minute. So, this is the thing that we were having a discussion about, and perhaps if a listener knows more than us, we'd love to have the feedback because it gives us something to learn from for future seasons. Uh, the language of flowers isn't really called out anywhere, but it seems endemic to the Yuri genre in a way uh-huh. that you are expected to know these things, and yet I don't think either of us could trace it to some singular point. And I get there's a whole metaphor about Yuri's, Lily's, love, women, etc. that goes into a lot of this. But everyone just sort of presumes in these works that, oh, you didn't know what it meant when she gave you white clovers? Or... Oh, no, that specific color of rose actually means that she would like to see you crucified before the cock crows twice. <laughs> but no. Well, I it's... mean, like, I mean, like the Black Rose Saga, you know? Well, that's true. But, you know, that's that's black. Black flowers always have an ominous yeah. connotation of doom. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. But like, I mean, it's it's not just Yuri. It's not entirely just Yuri, because there's also... Like, I know roses are used a lot in Chojo or occasionally Boys Love, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, like, the origin of the term Yuri is, like, and the use of flowers is, like, tied also to Boys Love stuff, which was tied to roses. Um, th- there's a lot of stuff, but it seems like particularly in Yuri, because the flower is the name of the genre, or at least one of the names, the primary name of the genre now. Uh, like is especially true for Yuri, especially because like like the the lily flower, which is what Yuri means, is specifically about pure love. And so when you think about pure love between girls, I mean, that's that's the image. Yeah, the purest love is non-penetrative. We get it. (laughs) (laughs) But Uh, another thing related to that, just before we start going into the research you actually did. I couldn't figure out where the line was because I was thinking about Sailor Moon, which has a lot of flower and rose themed works, mostly revolving around a couple of characters and one of the movies. But nobody ever stops with an asteroid covered in flowers and goes, ah, 
don't you know, in the language of love, that means... No, it's an asteroid yeah. covered in flowers that is going to kill yeah. us all. Nobody cares what it means. <laughs> it's just very interesting that such a major work on the shoujo side of things did get... It just didn't touch this. And the maybe that's... Thing... Yeah, yeah. The, the funny thing about anime in general is like, I think when people talk about not liking anime, aside from all things like the pervy stuff, one of the like bugbears that people run into a lot is that anime just explains everything to you. So like you don't miss a damn thing. And in fact, it tends to really like, like rub your face in it sometimes with the exposition or like the meaning of things in a way that feels very like, okay, maybe this was for children who weren't going to get it. But like, yeah, this is one part of the storytelling that tends to be not touched upon. Like it's just visual and it's never really like brought to the forefront and you really need context to understand it. Hell, a giant part of the finale of this show is uh, Kokona just constantly acting as a solid snake and mirroring the questions back at people before they give an explanation. Yeah. Took uh, took a lot less time to do dialogue on that because people were repeating it every 10 seconds, so I didn't have to pause. <laughs> Metal Gear? Damn it, now I can't remember one of the questions she <laughs> asked about. <laughs> Hermes no, no, she, she finds she finds Buchan like as an excavator, like doing like construction work. <laughs> She's like Metal Gear. No, that, that's what that's gonna be the image in my head now forever. Damn it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, some of the language of flowers throughout the show. Uh, obviously, Mimi is surrounded by white clover. Good lord. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Which apparently stands for betrayal and revenge for broken promises, not just lazily adding the Windows XP screensaver, like I kept joking. Uh huh. Uh, there's also, I mean, like you know, you have green clovers being for like good luck and stuff, but like there's this other side of it that's uh, very dark, and it's definitely the case. You know, like when when Mimi gets and later Coconut gets the clover crown, like it's definitely not a betrayal revenge thing but like it becomes that as well like it's it's got two sides of a coin well also it's not the clovers that are growing out of every person that she attacks at asclepius it's the flowers that are colonizing mm -hmm. them yeah it's admittedly an interesting use on that weaponizing the meaning mm -hmm. uh, the boats constantly got a bellflower in it which Makes sense when you realize it stands for unchanging love and mm -hmm. all the toxicity involved in everything that happens in that boat. Yeah. And the last one you spotted was that Yayaka is constantly surrounding herself with begonias, which A, act as a warning of caution and B, sort of dark preoccupation in your own thoughts, but it can be used as a symbol to finalize a friendship. And if it's pink, it might mean love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like when Yayaka first hangs out with Coconut and they like run around and hide from like the doctors, th all of those flowers are begonias. And like when they're in the nurse's office, the little flower pot, those are begonias in like 
Kokoda's room, which is otherwise very sparse, there's a painting of begonias over her bed. And then at the very end, when Yayaka finally has her face turn, um, like the little flower pot, like the little robot face flower pot that she then uses to like fight back against the twins, that also has begonias in it. Like they're just all over the place. Hmm. I, I confess, I stopped looking at the backgrounds outside of Pure Illusion at a certain mm-hmm. point. So this is making me... Well, it's not making me want to go back and watch this. But <laughs> I know. It's making me wonder how much more I would notice with this in tow. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it seems like it is... I... I don't know if this was going to tip off someone sooner on some of these twists that happened. Like, not that the twist that Yayaka is, you know, in league with Asclepius, like that comes pretty early. That's episode three, basically. Mm-hmm. But like, I wonder how many of those other little twists are like kind of buried within these meanings. And so watching it the second time through or watching it with that knowledge would have made for a slightly different experience in terms of how the reveals hit. I'm a little irritated by the fact that we didn't get the collector's art book that came with the release overseas. If you were buying Blu-rays for what it's worth, there was a very limited run of that set in the U S and it was long gone by the time matter. I bought it. I would find out later. Because I feel some character notes would have been an interesting way to look at how mm-hmm. much of this was planned from the beginning when they had one showrunner versus what just kind of came in as the staff working in the background. Yeah. Or like who contributed what parts of it, because, you know, this is kind of a weird mashup of genres that wasn't originally the the original plan. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of flower stuff. Uh, like, I, I should, like, make a running list just for myself of, like, here, this is where all the flowers are. Like, if you see a flower, just stop and look for it. Like, huh. I mean, for instance, I think I mentioned this in an earlier episode, but, like, one of the things that the Bloom Into You anime adds is because it's in color, mm-hmm. There's an episode that involves hydrangeas and different colors of hydrangeas because they there's like four different kinds and they have different meanings, of course. And every time they show up, it's with two different sets of characters and they have different colors and they all have meanings related to those colors like that. This is something like if you keep an eye out for it, you'll find it everywhere. But like I want to have that reference so that I don't miss it. Because I will miss it every time until, like, I go back to review something like this or somebody points it out. Oh, I understand. Mm -hmm. So, Asclepius. One of the things that may be tied to the meaning of why why they used Asclepius as the name of the bad guys. uh, Like we said, that was originally it's a god of health. And it was a a god that was, like, so good at healing people that he could heal people from the dead. And so Zeus killed him, (laughs) which is interesting. Uh, But also, it could also be a reference to Hermeticism uh, because, like, which is a 
I guess it's a religious sort of subsect. Like it's kind of related to Christianity. It's kind of not. Um, I don't. I don't proclaim to know it very well. I found out about this last night, and I <laughs> spent an hour when I was very tired, sleep deprived, reading um, this one bit of text called the Asclepius, because Asclepius is a person who gets basically uh, he's the Plato that gets Socrates too. <laughs> Um, and, uh, it doesn't seem like I read all 41 chapters of the damn thing and mm. there was really nothing to grasp onto. Cause a lot of it is just about like the meaning of God and how does God relate to the earth? And it's not really relevant to anything here. Look, that's but, like, the, the Greek version of flower language. Yeah, more or less. Uh, but like the one thing maybe that one of the tenets of like Hermeticism, or at least one of the phrases that came out of it that people may know is the as above so below which kind of just means that heaven and earth are connected and they're you know inseparable and that mm -hmm. may be related to pure illusion and normal reality but that's that's as far as i could tell um anyway do we want to talk about the school at all i know that was something we considered talking about because it was kind of an odd place or maybe we could just talk about the town in general uh, like, do we think it's a Asclepius, you know, design or like, is this just weird and fairy tale like because it's they just wanted it that way? <laughs> I think it's more that it comes down to this is simply a remote area, mm -hmm. which makes sense with the original experiments and probably why this place never grew much. It has one facility that's tied to a lot of things. It's out in the remote area. It's clearly, this is where we were testing something that we wanted to keep out of everyone's hair. And then, it's interesting because I can read two ways into it. One is, all of this town and this region got caught up because it was all Mimi ever knew before self-destructing, and that's why her pieces came to rest sort of in and around here. Mm -hmm. The other is that this feels like Proto-Asclepius just wanted a facility that was out of the way, was not going to be... If I look at it from the person who works in operations standpoint, I could see a lot of benefits to this region. It's out of the way, doesn't cost much land, probably cheap, not going to have a lot of interference, likely not a lot of uh, zoning problems that you have mm -hmm. to deal with. And it turns out if things start exploding or if you have a force of guards in your weird campus that's off in the distance... Nobody in town's going to notice because how often are they heading anywhere outside of this or to the big city? Mm hmm. So yeah, like, I, I wonder if the show would have been better to show more of the town or like maybe show how bizarre it is. Like, you know, when people see Papika flying on her hoverboard, nobody really bats an eye at it. And I wonder if that's just this world is just kind of weird like that, or if it's just one of those uncanny, like, 
you know, they didn't spend any time talking about, hey, what's up with that weird girl who, who flies on a hoverboard? I've never seen a hoverboard before. That's wild. Well, the kids at school immediately take to Papika, and she's just part of the yeah. class as soon as she gets in. Yeah. I mean, she's definitely an interesting character. And they're having lunch with her. Nobody's going, oh, that's weird, other than Yayaka, really. But a thing occurred to me during the finale arc, which is that we don't really see a lot of the town other than a couple of shots. The most of it we see as a living thing comes in the Eero episode, where we're walking around it and seeing yeah. different angles. Because I presume that's the same town. I don't get the vibe that Eero moved. Yeah. You know, so as a result, it kind of... If we tried doing anything with a larger cast, I'd say there might be more to explore, but the show keeps a conservation pretty tightly. We don't even get names for generic teachers in this school. Or generic students. <laughs> yeah, we'll see some of the same people reused in crowd shots, but nobody ever names them. Yeah. You know, the one thing that I would say maybe points towards the town, well, maybe not the town being built by Asclepius, but Asclepius, like, specifically, or like the research center placing itself near a remote town is that they need to source kids to match with Mimi. That's and true. So like this doesn't turn into Evangelion where the school is like very much the recruiting ground for like in that place, like Tokyo three, you're in high school, you're going to be recruited by nerve if you meet the qualifications. We don't really get that much context for this town, but like I could imagine that being the case potentially. Mm -hmm. You know, so who knows? Uh, it, like there's a lot of things we don't know. Like how do they end up making the twins and uh new new? It's just something that happens off screen. And we just assume that they just did mad science and it happened. I guess part of my assumption based on Papika and Papikana is that all the children were unrelated to the town. They came mm. in as they were orphans cycled in and out or something because Papika doesn't mention my parents brought me here. Mm -hmm. I'm here because I live nearby. It's just Papika showed up here and she has no more cares or worries. Yeah, and it just makes that other bit where it's like, how did she get out of pure illusion and how did she get by in reality up to the point? Actually, no, I'm mixing up timelines. You see, that's why this is confusing. There's just a mm -hmm. lot of like connective tissue that isn't really explained in terms of the plot, which I don't know how important that is to the themes of the show. But anyway, um, do we want to talk about the Pure Illusion locations before we talk about themes? Uh, I had it in the other way around, but... Let's go into that. And also, I want to play a game with you. So I did research on the airing and the discussion of it in anime fan communities as this show went on. Live reactions. Couldn't get a lot of Twitter posts because uh -huh. those are incredibly hard to search with any time period, but web forms, my anime list, something awful archives, etc. 
What do you think was the first really divisive episode of this show? The first really divisive episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's tough. Like, I would probably, I mean, look, I could say probably episode two. Not quite. It was episode three. Really? Yes. Mm. Because that's where it came down to a lot of people who were divided on. We're doing something with these characters. We're giving you all sorts of animation porn. And people who were going, I this is just, this is aggressively shonen in the middle of my Yuri anime. I didn't sign <laughs> up for this DBZ shit. What is this power creep? What is this beam fighting? Why are they transforming into Super Saiyan versions? Yeah, that a lot of that makes sense. That like I know that when I first watched it, this was the point where I go like, "Oh, did it have to go Magical Girl? Like, did we need that?" And yeah, if you were kind of expecting something that was more, I don't want to say more grounded because of Pure Illusion is obviously not grounded at all. <laughs> but the idea of like we're not doing the we've got you know transformations and we have named moves out of nowhere and of course there's like a catchphrase that the girls have never said before but they know by heart you know stuff like that it if you're not expecting the show to be very much a homage machine which it kind of is like this is where it first really kind of comes out as that and so, yeah, I totally understand that. Yep. So I was just curious. Yeah, I've I've got one more of these surprises for you, too, but we'll, we'll get there. So let's okay. talk about the places. Right. So the first one, uh, I called it Winter Wonderland. I, I think that's pretty clear that this is Kokona's, like, default state. Like, this is where she starts off. This is where she regresses to at the end of the show. I don't think it's necessarily related to any other character as far as I can tell. I mean, that seems pretty one for one. Yeah, I think the metaphor really only works fully with Coconut. I guess my other question was going to be, do we think all of these map to a character? I want to say yes and no. Like, I think they play it fast and loose, because I think some of these are very clearly one to one. Yes. Like... Yeah, I'm not uh, saying they can't not be. I'm just saying they. I think they can't all be. I agree with that. I agree with that. Because, like, I mean, the ones in episode nine have nothing to do with anything. You can't really grasp onto much of anything when it comes to the, the blank room. I mean, at most, I could call it slamming on one of the twins for being voids. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, also... That episode was called Pure Mute, and, like, there's a lot in that episode. Like, there's the point where, like, when the girls are, well, the girl, the uh, coconut and the twins are in the trap, and they can't hear outside. Like, there's a lot of, like, lacking of communication information, and I feel like having a white space with nothing in it doesn't communicate anything. I mean, that kind of makes sense, but, I mean, like, would you call that Yayaka's place? I don't think so. No, and then we sort of lose a bit of this in the final episode when we're just doing a bunch of flashbacks. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And flashbacks kind of break the pure illusion metaphor in its own way. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea is that, well, I guess it really depends on is pure illusion completely tied to Mimi or not? Because if it's completely tied to Mimi, that's fascinating. I don't know how they discovered it in the first place, but also that would explain why she has complete control over it and is able to, you know, base, <laughs> what, what, what's the term? Maze people <laughs> effectively like entrap and yeah, entrap them into other parts of pure illusion that are like otherwise considered isolated or somewhat isolated. But yeah, it does kind of break the metaphor. I mean, granted, it's also a way to get in some reuse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think, yeah, the winter wonderland, pretty straightforward. I think the second one, the bunny land, I mean, that has to be Wexkull's. I would be willing to say maybe there's a little bit of poppycock in there as well because of just how animalistic and sort of instinct driven or impulse driven things are there. It does seem like, you know, not unlike what her, uh, you know, little pillow fort uh, house ends up looking like. Like It's just color and energy just you know spewed everywhere. Counterpoint, I'd say it's all Wexkull, but it's... The show hasn't gone full reference yet. It's still doing a sort of fairy tale motif, given that it's blatantly Alice in Wonderland. Mm, yeah. And you say that Papika is very animalistic, very impulse-driven, but the thing that gets her out of that one is that she is forced by the metal wall at the end while she watches Coconut descend to consider things, to think about what was said, to push herself yeah. beyond that impulsive gesture. Yeah. I think one of the things that kind of gets buried in the show is just how much Poppyka grows as a character, because I think she does, but the show does a bad job of really demonstrating that in a way that feels very impactful. Like, by well, the middle of the show, she's definitely become more considerate of Coconut, but then you have the memory problems and then things kind of deteriorate and, you know, she's just kind of the same. She feels a lot like the same character most of the time. So a character like Papika is hard to write, especially in a brief series like this, yeah. because she has some of the most development of anyone, but a lot of what characterizes her start to finish is being not quite a hothead, but just very head empty bimbo mm -hmm. sort of energy. That's I'm not going to consider this. I'm just going to do a thing. And later on, she's doing a thing that's less reckless. She's learned she can't, endanger herself for these things but she's also not stopping to think about it yeah. she's if we were to swap genders on this she would be the meathead character who rushes in she's a uh -huh. shonen protagonist in a yuri series <laughs> yeah very much so i and i think that we don't get a lot of interiority to her even at the point where she gets her old memories back 
because you wonder, like, she is already so bought into Kokono when she finds her, but she never interrogates why is that the case? How do I know this person? Where did I know her from? Like, none of that gets explained. We don't even know if she remembers running into Kokono when she was in Pure Illusion as a child, at, at sec- the second time around as a child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So my question on that is, what, if anything, do her memories really do for her if she remembers being Papikana at the end? I, I don't know. <laughs> like, to be honest... There's that there's the one line which I think is probably the most egregious in the show which is I loved you since you were born and that is troubling because uh, as I mentioned that's very twilight <laughs> like mm-hmm. imprinting and all that. Uh so I would imagine like it would make more sense to me that you know the way that relationship developed Papika ended up becoming more attached to coconut because of the experiences that they've had together right like the relationship they've built with each other but the thing is you needed a strong like base to like build that off especially when the show wants to like go for it like immediately because it only has 13 episodes mm-hmm. they already have to have some kind of connection and like the buried version of the old memories are able to do that. I I don't, I would have liked for Papika to kind of say like, yeah, those memories were great, but like, they're not me anymore. That was a me of a different time. I've lived this other life so far. And to me, that is more important and kind of put those other ones aside. But she doesn't really say that. She kind of says, I want both. <laughs> Alternate thought and something that just occurred to me, it's sort of breaking format here, but I think a stronger move is if, like Mimi becoming a creature of pure illusion in that explosion, Poppycana dies, or Poppycana becomes part of pure illusion, and Poppica is the child, the clean break, the splitting off from the original. I would like that better, right? Because then you can add in the metaphor of Mimi and Papikana, which they aren't explicitly romantic, mm-hmm. like even less, like way less so than you would see with um, Papika and Kokona. Mm-hmm. But like, if that were the case, you could have very easily made that a metaphor for like past generations not being able to live you know, especially for like, say, queer women in this case, live openly or live the way they want to. And they got sort of lost to the, you know, lost to pure illusion, lost to the the imaginary space. And it is like the next generation coming up that is able to break out of that and break away from that and then, you know, live openly. Like you could have made that a metaphor. I think that I also think it gives us a little less of a this came out of nowhere in the 11th yeah. hour if Mimi, the good one, shows up and Papi Kana shows up and it's the a whole prior generation, not just, no, but I have a non-shadow self here, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had and to talk about could, shadows. 
and then we could still get the line of, you know, oh, you're still a dick to Salt, which was great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're meaner. That's it. Right. And well, and the thing is, if you did that, you would have dualities of all of the characters, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least except for Coconut. So like you would have of the original trio, you would have Mimi has a duality, Salt has a duality, and then Papikana has a duality. And I think that would definitely round things out better. At least it would make the salt thing at the very end feel like it doesn't come out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I mean, like there is a element of there's always some type of temptation by pure illusion to say live in that world, right? Like you have Wawishia trying to essentially seduce Kokona and then you have the salt thing, but you know, the way it's structured, it doesn't feel right. It feels completely out of left field because we don't see the, you know, the two Mimis coexist. We see them as a different sides of the same person, which is something yeah. we'll get into more. But the structure that this theme is built on is this gorgeous spire. And then if you look over five feet, there's a rusted over outhouse that's <laughs> falling over because we didn't quite finish the project, but it's beautiful yeah. otherwise. God, like going over episode recaps for this and like reading how people were like sort of enjoying it and like it it makes me still like I still appreciate the beginning of this show. There's so many things about it. It's just so bad at the end. It's really hard to recommend. Yep. Well, let's let's pop back to the actual pure illusion stuff because we went afield and that's my fault. No, no, it's all good. Uh, so the Mad Max Yuri Road world. I mean, I want to say that this is another Kokona because to some degree, because this is about her, the repression of her like more violent instincts. Right. And she's she became enabled to sort of live those out. You know, she's a very repressed person in general, but like her frustration with Papika, she's given an outlet for it. And I think it's that bottled up aggression that's what created this you know very you know ruthless world i think it only works that way if we think that part of pure illusions many facets idea is that you can have multiple shards of yourself in it Mm, yeah because otherwise she kind of breaks the rules here I mean, do you think she breaks the rules because she doesn't have a defined enough personality to have multiple sides? I think it's more that that blows up your metaphor if she has so many sides that they are all distinct worlds. Three, at least, because there's two different worlds in this land, which are separated from each other in orbit. Mm, Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean... This one, I think, is the one that you most can point to other than Tron City <laughs> and say, that is a reference. This exists because it's a reference. Yeah. And they, use, they use it for thematic purpose, but it doesn't exist for thematic purpose. No, I, I'm unsure. This comes so early. Yeah. And it upends a lot of rules by introducing a character who lives in pure illusion with Wellwishia. Yeah. And we see later, Well, Wisha is not something Mimi created, seemingly. 
She is her own being with agency. Mm. Yeah, it definitely stands out by the end of this series that this world and her specifically, or even like, you know, the, the villagers and the people on the metal planet, like they're, they're all living beings with their own sentience and that's, or sapiens. And that is like bonkers. Like the only time we see something similar to that is when we go into, you know, memory town. And that is kind of cheating because it's really just a reflection of the real world memories of people. Yeah, this uh, is the only land yeah. that has a full cast in it that isn't comprised mm -hmm. of multiple versions of the same person or memory. Yeah. Yeah, because the thing is, if you had, if that was like a running thing where every world had its inhabitants and it wasn't just kind of abstract land a lot of the time, like mm -hmm. you could have done a thing where, you know, going back for more adventures means visiting old friends, right? Like you would establish more characters. Yeah. And that's not, that's not this show at all. This show wants to be about the primary characters, which yeah, I think makes the most very sense. tight cast, which is mm -hmm. part of why the triplet is so weird at the end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, all right. There's no pure illusion in episode four, but episode five, the class S school of horrors. <laughs> so I'm torn on this one. And mm -hmm. I don't know. What what are your thoughts first before I bring that forward? I think I pitched during our discussion of this the first time that I saw it as a, a subtext. The longing of every woman who couldn't act on this mm -hmm. channeled away into that realm. Right. It's a giant subconscious id. Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense that it, you know, it's tied explicitly to the real world school where this is probably happening in real time. And in fact, it is happening for a specific character, and that would be Yayaka. Mm -hmm. I've seen some people say that Yayaka was the one who created this world. And that, that I both understand that take and kind of disagree with it. I, I don't think the show does a good job of tying that in with her because she's the one who she doesn't know how to break out of it. Like she doesn't end up being the one who solves the puzzle herself, but she's also the one that's not nearly as affected by pure illusion. And you would imagine that if this was a world made of her, own rules that she's made for herself or that she's feels is being imparted upon her. She would have had some effect, you know, she wouldn't be just completely inured to it, but also maybe she's just more comfortable in it. And that's because that's the world she's comfortable living in, or she's lived her whole life. Well, if we read it that way, I can take two things that kind of agree with it, kind of disagree. Yeah. The schoolgirl colored schoolgirl shaped objects that are within this all have a generic these are just as nameless and formless as the other students at our school who yeah kind of aren't pressuring me but i'm afraid that they will turn on me but also if this is yayaka's own complexes 
it's very hard to break out of a loop you've set yourself in without outside influence. So I could see why yeah, she would yeah, not yeah. solve this one, even though she's closely tied to it, because it's her maze. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, like, this would have been a great place for Begonios to show up, right? Like, you know what I yeah, mean? <laughs> but it's barren. No, and, and every flower is a Yuri because, sorry, is a lily, which is a Yuri. Huh. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> every girl's a Yuri. Every flower's a Yuri. It's all Yuri's all the way down. Uh, yeah. So it makes sense that you don't see a begonia in there at all. But like that would have been a hint to me that Yayaka is more tied to it. But yeah, it does make sense that she can't solve the riddle because it is her riddle. This is also the part where, if we follow that logic, when we break that school belt, this is where she starts rebelling more against Sclepius going forward. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the first point where she actively helps Coconut. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Because she saves their lives. They would die here otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess is an interesting take, you know, considering that Yayaka's feelings for Coconut are probably stronger than just friendship we don't really yeah. know but like you can imagine that her jealousy over poppycut and is tied to that because clearly she's losing her best friend to to her best friend's crush so and you know. also if i think that metaphor through yeah if the whole thing is about the fear of rejection or being turned on for going outside that system you can also read the school children as Asclepius who do start mm -hmm. turning on her the instant she goes outside those boundaries yeah yeah you know I don't know if there was a good place to put this I might as well bring this up here since we are talking about Yayaka mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that the show does that is very clever but you would probably never notice is a uh, color theory matching. So when you look at the trio of Kokona, Papika and Yayaka, at least in terms of when they're transformed, um, all three of them, when they all have transformed, once Yayaka also goes, you know, flip flappers or whatever, they complete the color circle. So, the there's the, okay so there's the additive colors and there's the subtractive colors i'm going to try to remember which ones are which properly but okay. yaika is uh green hair yellow eyes coconut is uh like magenta hair blue eyes and papika is uh like cyan hair and i believe it's oh it's not green i i'm Whatever the case is, there's the three sets of colors. And when you bring in Yayaka's colors, they all complement each other. So all of the subtractive colors and all of the additive colors are present with the three of them. The one interesting thing is, though, that in terms of which one's the eye color and which one's the hair color is flipped for Yayaka compared to the other two. Hmm. So like her her eyes are yellow and her hair is green, which is the opposite of what you'd expect. But there's also hints in the... Uh, in the opening credits that kind of play into there are three and they're using these three color or at least the, uh, the subtractive colors 
as sort of complementary to each other. And then I guess also ties into the whole id super ego ego thing that you could also map the three girls onto. Also, related to that, I did think of what I was going with. If you read this as Yayaka slowly starting to break out of the part of herself that cringes, <laughs> and <laughs> you, you have to realize, when we next see her do anything really drastic like this, she almost doesn't come to their assistance in the Tron City episode because she's just like, this is stupid. I'm not saying the words. I'm not gonna say the word. She is so resistant to looking like a fool, to stepping out of line. Yeah, there's... <laughs> I just love the kill the part of you that is cringe. <laughs> that is very funny it, to me. It's very, very active. She is so no, I much... Know. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's makes sense if she is the ego right she the ego would be the side that would be most easily embarrassed but also it kind of ties into the whole um i don't know how to pronounce this word uh chunibio uh chunibio, i believe it's like yeah. chunibio the whole phenomenon that when you know either kids of a certain age or kids who have gone through some kind of trauma start believing they are living in a fantasy world and act it out in a way that is very much like 24-7 LARPing. Oh, I always just heard that as 12-year-old cool was the closest English. Oh, like, I, I've i heard it used in other terms where it's kind of like, it, it's kind of a type of, like, self-delusion. Um, but, like, the idea of, like, Oh, that is, and if you're someone who went through that phase, that'd be super, super embarrassing to uh, think back on, right? Speaking <laughs> of which, uh, my volume three of Watamode, which is coming in eight months late, is out uh, out on the way to me now. Nice. <laughs> Just speaking of, you know, very chuny delusions. <laughs> yeah. But like part of me feels like that's where some of the embarrassment comes from. I mean, part of it is just when you're being honest about your feelings, that makes you feel that can make you feel uncomfortable and very vulnerable and all that, especially if you pride yourself on your uh, composure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just an interesting other element, because, yeah, this is also like, you know, absurd. Right. You know, you have people turning into like, you know, butterfly girls. It's. It's out there. Uh, so moving on from that, Art Supply Land, I don't I don't think there's any surprise here. This is Iridori's world. I mean, the colors and the type of imagery in that particular land, it matches one of the paintings we saw her draw, which I, I believe I've seen it mentioned to be of like Matisse-esque. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think there's any surprise there. I mean... One of the interesting takes that I saw is that, like, so sort of related to that, is that when Iridori tries the cookies, like, you know, Coconut and Papika show up with their cookies, and Coconut's looks misshapen and terrible, and Papika's looks perfect, which I still think is weird. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense because you'd expect the opposite. But you could say that the reason why Iridori tried the ugly ones first is because she was more drawn to it because it is closer to her art style, which I thought was an interesting take. 
Also, I think Papika's cookies looking perfect and tasting off fits a lot because... That would make sense, yeah. She is shown to be a regular cook. She's just got what's clearly a different flavor palette from everyone else (laughs) and the way she's mixing some of these ingredients into a sweet carrot roll or... Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Anytime (laughs) we get any detail on how she cooks... But also in the survival episode on the island, she knows which berries you shouldn't eat, possibly mm-hmm. from experience testing them. Who knows? Yep. Yep. There's a lot of she will keep you alive and she will do it with the least amount of concern for how it gets done. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know how Papika's taste, but yeah, I would presume they don't taste good <laughs> or they don't taste right. Just if we follow that metaphor, I think they will taste distinct. Yeah. Yeah, I would have just like one thing in there that doesn't make sense, like soy sauce or I don't know. Yeah, I, I couldn't find enough salt for this, so I used soy sauce instead. That would be the that would be the way it would get done. There, I wonder if you can make an intro. I mean, there are sweets that involve soy sauce, so oh, yeah. it's something that can be done. Uh, they're not my favorite, but also true. Uh, yeah so what about the town of many papikas what are your thoughts on that one i still think this is this is <laughs> probably my number two favorite episode if i'm honest yeah yeah it's very interesting because it gives both of our main characters no one to bounce off but each other and in very different ways. Mm-hmm. I would have loved a two-parter out of this concept. Maybe flipping it on both of their heads. Yeah. Because this is clearly Papika's world, but we're also talking about a Papika who, at the end of this episode, or maybe maybe the end of the next one, it's it's kind of unclear when the dam starts to break. This is when we get Poppy Kana starting to leak back out because mm-hmm. someone's been poking around in her head going, who are you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one where the setting is secondary to the thematic stuff they're trying to do, which is just, you know, Coconut trying to figure out where her feelings on Poppyka fit and using all of these tropes and expectate you know things you would expect out of other people that you'd be interested in um you know trying to fit papika into one of those boxes and none of them quite fit they all have elements that she likes and they they are all transgressive and like pull coconut into doing something that kind of breaks the rules but yeah the the town itself like it's hard for me to want to like put my pin in whose it is specifically Uh, like Papika makes sense and the town is also composed I don't maybe we see one new area but everywhere we see them go to in this aside from the hotel room the hotel room is new yeah I think Um, the the, um, the temple is new I was about to say yeah also the shrine I was trying to my brain was going construction site no it's a shrine that's why it's (laughs) so old yeah, yeah. Um, but other than that, 
it's another thing where it kind of wraps in that the Eero episode was in this same small town because they're in a lot of locations from that. Mm-hmm. The riverbed, uh, yeah. some of the places she was walking to. I think they're outside one of those houses at one point. It's it's the most the show goes out of its way to say this city doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Because where they are means nothing so much as what the Papika is trying to get out of Kokona. Yeah, it all exists as a place for Papika to break in various ways. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it's... As a locale, this means little, but as an episode, A+. plus, Great show. Yeah. Like, part of me wants to say... God, I wish there was an easy way to say, hey, if you're curious about this show at all, watch, like, these three episodes. But, like, you kind of need to understand the context or else they probably don't land at all. Uh, I mean, I could easily get this down to three for you. You go pilot. mm -hmm. You go episode five. You go episode seven. Yeah. I just think episode six is so sorry. Which one's uh, episode six is so strong. Like I, it's hard for me to say, like, I think it's not a great display of flip flappers being about, you know, imagination or like, you know, animation, but it's just, you know, I just find that one very, very potent. I think I go with seven over six Mm -hmm. because you're going to have a lot more questions that aren't yeah, really that's true. a problem. In like in seven, it's like, okay, I've seen these two characters. This is them confronting each other. If you do six, you have a whole extra layer of, wait, what just happened? And also it's about, see, a th- it's about a third yeah. character who's not very important to the plot. And you don't really pick up on why the final scene with the nail yeah. polish or anything is so different. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's... Ugh. It's tough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you're right. I mean, I would I would also add three because I think three is a great episode, but I think three is a great episode. But I also think if you're just picking three, it yeah, does yeah. not sell what's going on here as hard. It, it definitely would feel like what the hell happened between episode one and three. And mm-hmm. the question the thing is, it's just as confusing when you watch two in the middle. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't actually have a build up to it. It just is out of nowhere because that's what it's doing. Um, so Tron City, this is Buchan. I can't think of anything else. Like it's it's a cyber town. It's like it's powered by a brain. The planet is a brain, you know, pops or like, you know, the old man, like he looks like Buchan, like he mimics the the blue eye on the left side, uh, his left side. And there are ways you could say it is, he is tied to Hidaka because like, especially the shots of, um, of pops, like in his little headquarters looks a lot like Hidaka's like workstation Lair. with all of the junk around it. Um, the, the thing is it doesn't really, it's so weird how this character who would otherwise be just 
a pervy Greek chorus of sorts and uh, turns into one of the driving forces that helps Yayaka sort of face her feelings. It, it That does not line up at all. And again, I've seen some people take from this episode that they think Buchan is cloned from part of Hidaka's brain. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I've heard some people think that this is another flip-flap scientist who had his brain uh, saved and transferred, which is dark as fuck. Yeah, that feels way against what this organization does. They're very tight. Yeah. They don't... Hell, we kind of don't even get an explanation of what... Papika's failed candidates. Did they die? Did they just reject this and run away? Mm-hmm. Or did they just pass out and then they just kind of like shoved her off screen and be like, we're not dealing with you anymore. <laughs> and we the part know. of that that I have to question is in the first episode, you don't think anything of it when Papika's just like, that one didn't work. I got to go get another one. But when you see how doggedly she pursues Coconut, you don't get the feeling that she lets people go easily. Yeah, I mean, it could be a thing like we don't. All we know is that, like, you go into pure illusion. You could die probably in pure illusion if something just, you know, stabs you or whatever. Guarantee. And we know that your brain can get real fucked up if you go too deep and you can go crazy we don't know if it can cause brain death or if like you try to go with someone who has really high impedance, you know, with you that it breaks one of the two people. I don't, we we have no context as to what could have happened to this girl at all. And it does seem tonally very weird for her to be dead. Right. Because like, you think, you know, Hidaka is Hidaka. Like, that dude's just like that. Salt is, you know, broody, whatever. But like Sayuri is like really kind of cheerful and supportive. And I would imagine, you know, <laughs> killing young women in the process of trying to do this, they would probably weigh on her a bit more, uh, especially if or like if one of their compatriots got turned into a robot. Like, I'm sure she would also feel bad about it at the very let's, least. So like, let's I don't have know. a quick discussion here. What is Sayuri's deal? <laughs> she's cute. I think that's it. <laughs> like I, she's the, the she's the nice one. She's the nice one who wants to explain things in plain language because Salt is being a Gendo and Hidaka is insane. There is no easy read as to what Sayuri does, why she sticks around. If you told me Sayuri was just here for college credit, that would be a better motivation than the series <laughs> gives her. She she feels very like a Masato reference, honestly. And she clearly uh, hates dealing with Hidaka. She's like hot and cold with him. Which, like, I'm glad they didn't make it a she has a crush on him because that would have made me roll my eyes real hard. But like, yeah, she definitely suffers a bunch of verbal abuse from him, but still still makes him tea. And also, so, I don't know. She's the only one who comments on this guy smells like shit. <laughs> the, the little imp who just lives in a pile of garbage turns out hygiene not a priority. 
Yeah, I would have liked at least one line being like, why are you here? Because Hadaka, you could say, Hadaka is a mad scientist and found out about pure illusion and is like all in on it. Cool. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. We know why Salt's there. We just don't know why she's there. And yeah, just coming back to this as we're going over themes. She doesn't really do much or exist. She might be the flattest character. Oh, she absolutely is the flattest character. Besides maybe Nunu, who is not, I mean, that's not, that's not a comment on. No, no, no. I didn't think that looks like, uh, but like, you know what I mean? I think it's very hard to get a read on whether Nunu has less development than her. Yeah, I don't know if Nunu is supposed to be a shitpost. Like, there's a potential case that she is really just kind of making fun of a genre convention because of how absurd she looks and how little she does. But then again, I could equally expect the board to say, hey, we need otaku bait. Let's make one. And there you go. And it's like, gross. Yeah, the final chunk of this show is very hard to mix intended destination versus where we landed the plane. I would be fascinated to read interviews on this. Like, if there is a po- post-mortem from the developers, or like, you know, not, I say developers because of games. <laughs> you know, the you GDC know what I mean. talk on flip-flappers. <laughs> <laughs> so th- this would be so much better if uh, Saga... <laughs> Soraya Saga's uh, flip-flappers. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Boy, wouldn't that be cool? Hey, hey. Actually, yes. Let's get her her a job, and it's to do rebuild of flip-flappers. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Wouldn't that be incredible, though? (laughs) I would absolutely be there for that, but, oh, I can't (laughs) think of a worse punishment for that woman. (laughs) Oh, for her, yes. (laughs) <laughs> look a job's a job you know you gotta get back in there somewhere and then build up from there anyway <laughs> yeah let's, yeah let's let's bring our uh pure illusion discussion home okay yeah i mean i think I, I touched on it already but i didn't see much in the the blank room and also the there's a before they get there the asclepius trio are like in a space world they're like they're just on a planet with like spacesuits i don't think there's anything there <laughs> no i, I think that's just anything. a cool visual yeah yeah a cool visual and then the other one is just plain because they wanted to although do something else i don't know it does make sense if you read the white room as just being a blatant 2001 reference yeah yeah but like what does that mean for the hair monster trap thing Oh, nothing there. Yeah. <laughs> you see, like, you would expect there to be some type of, uh, like, coherence with whatever well, that is. Maybe we're missing some context on that. If we do this all as just a big 2001 reference, like how we had the Mad Max mm. Fist of the North Star one, it does track. They have to get in, so they've got the spacesuits outside. Our heroines can just teleport into the middle of it, so they don't need to do that. Being trapped inside... The capsule is similar to when they're trying to fool Hal by, hey, we're just going to do this away from his microphones. We don't know he can read lips, which Uh comes up inside the capsule. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. This may actually be a very explicit 2001 reference. There's just uh, like, couldn't it have been a monolith? 
Maybe. I don't know. Would have been more maybe I too think obvious? The, the only part of it I can't make gel with that is what the little crystal arena they're in is, because that's not anything from 2001. Yeah, Maybe think, if we expand out to the sequel, 2010. You know, I I have a feeling that's just, we wanted to do something with Yayaka's memories and, like, the shattering of them. That's that's a powerful image. Let's just do that. But, like, at that point, Yayaka is not a magical girl, so, like, we don't know where that comes from at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just, it's the most random episode. But, yeah, I think you've convinced me that this is a 2001 reference. At the very least, from the locations. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it until you made me realize, oh, the silence in the capsule. That's the one that clicked. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, So the last real place is the forest, which is where Mimi's place is, right? The the boat that we're seeing glimpses of throughout the show. Yeah, yeah. we we, we see the boat, we see the lake, we see the clover field, we see the tree. Um, Like, yeah, I mean, I don't don't think there's really much to draw from that other than these are spaces, like, that outside was very important to her and very impactful to her, so she made her space look like that. I think that, that tracks... Well, the Cloverfield part of that tracks, the forest itself is mm. harder to read, especially the fact that there's constantly that jail cage tree or Yeah, I think I think the, I think the forest is the most discrepant part of it. I agree. Yeah, it feels like it went right, we were kind of doing a fairy tale thing. Let's have this be a fairy tale spooky forest. Yeah. And that's about it. And it, it, like it ties more with like the ending credits animation than anything else. Um, Which yeah. I've been trying to use as our episode art for these other than my brief shit post into pop team epic territory. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm glad you, you used the the freaked out coconut one because that is so weird. Oh, uh, they haven't all gone up as of this point, but. With the exception of one surprise that I have in store, all of the episode art is going to be some of those thumbnails from the ending sequence. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love those little chibi animations. It's just so weird that they went... They tell this whole story that we never see on screen of them going to some bizarre wooded fairy tale cabin and a different story based on how they're dressed and what's going on. Yeah, it's, I I don't know if it's trying to borrow, like, we've been going through this, we haven't seen a lot of, oh, that's clearly a reference, like, you could say the first world where they're doing the candy trail, that's a Hansel and Gretel thing, but other than that, they really haven't used that theming at all. I think the first half of the episodes fall into that and roughly when we change showrunners is when we stop having the fairy tale sequence yeah yeah i mean yeah you could say episode four has like peter pan vibes probably all like the lost boys island or whatever yeah there's a lot of yeah you could say a peter pan you could say a little hansel and gretel there 
just mm. having to survive alone, but there's only two of them. And you have Alice in Wonderland in episode two. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see where you're coming from there. I think the one that kind of breaks it is the school isn't a one-to-one. Clearly the Mad Max one doesn't work as well. Although I guess you could say, you know, forbidden power and a witch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a witch. Uh, there's, I mean, maybe you can make it, maybe there's something tied into like, like a thousand one Arabian nights or something, you know, there'd be nice. There could be some other type of like thing going on there. That's not like what Hans Christian Anderson, but you know, similar other tales of other lands. Yeah. It doesn't explain art supply land at all. (laughs) Um, it kind of does given that you have sort of a big bad wolf thing and a granny granny is the episode's most used word. That is true. There is no, you know, it would be interesting if there was like the creature isn't wolf like, right? Like it's just a big spider eye. <laughs> I don't know well, what that's that means thematically, but yeah, I don't know. Look, I, I think it falls mm. apart by the back half, but I think you can still read a bit of it into the Eero episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so themes, let's move on to the themes. Uh, I mean, there's a few things that are pretty straightforward. I think uh, the first one being attaining agency for the first time in your life as an adolescent, because I mean, I don't know if this was your experience. Like I actually did kind of choose my high school, but that's not super common when it comes to at least kids in America. Um, I think like for the most part, that's, a, you know, parents make that decision, but it seems like in Japan, that is occasionally the case where you have, you have to pick the school to apply to. And this decision's, you know, a pretty big one for someone who's like 14 years old. And, uh, obviously a lot of the show is Kokoda trying to figure out what she wants in order to decide it. And like, what is the rubric she needs to to use and how much of herself is she allowed to put into it i i think that a lot of these themes are that you've mentioned the first couple are very tied up in oh yeah coconut just being a milk toast person to begin with she has never really made a lot of decisions for herself because She's just had her grandmother's kind suggestions along the way. And say, oh, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to fight that. She's never really had. I don't think she's had attraction to another person because I think she's had Yayaka yeah. as a friend and never really considered it anything more than that. Yayaka has just been there since she was a kid. Yeah, they were like five. <laughs> and. She's never really not had a place to belong because she's just gone to presumably the same school for years upon years, known the girls, raised a rabbit. Yep, that's what I do. I have my routine and nothing changes it up. And yeah, and like she doesn't seem like she has a very close relationship with her grandmother, Mm -hmm. which for reasons we obviously know, but like, you know, she even though she feels very beholden to her family, she doesn't really 
display a lot of affection for them. She doesn't feel like it's not that she doesn't feel like she belongs elsewhere or like doesn't fit in, but she definitely kind of keeps people at a distance. Um, and that kind of makes it hard to connect with other people. Well, as someone who came from parents who were not, I have, I love both of my parents. Neither of them were particularly cuddly, touchy, warm mm -hmm. individuals. So I get that when you come up in an environment that's sort of clinical like that, mm -hmm. you just sort of presume, oh yeah, this is uh, this is how people this is how people react. And when she's just got nothing but a grandma robot, she, I think part of her just goes, well, it's because she's not my birth mother. That's why this yeah. is so different. I'm the child of the child, and she lost the child. And, you know, there's that distance between us. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I get the sense that Coconut is just sort of coasting by because nothing has ever upset that boat she's in. Right, because nobody's letting it. <laughs> mm -hmm. She's very much in a controlled environment the entire time, like, basically since she was, like, I don't know, six months old or whatever. Yeah, um, Lord knows at what point, but yeah, as uh, long as she can remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tied to that, I think this is why Yayaka having different feelings than what she presumed under the surface throws her so much and kind of puts a wedge between them. She's not used to the concept of people having different sides to themselves to her world granny is granny and yep. yayaka is my friend yayaka and teachers are teachers and cram school is for learning and wexkull is a rabbit and there's nothing deeper <laughs> to any of this none of her interactions are with anyone who is the slightest bit well they are interactions with people who have an undercurrent but She's just never considered anything deeper than the surface of that frozen pond. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense because the second she realizes that Papika has more going on under the surface with her experiences with Mimi, that's when she starts getting really upset. Right. That's where things get thrown out of balance for her, because all of a sudden this person who is very much just about her and only cares about her, only thinks about her. All of a sudden this person has a history. Yep. And that freaks her out. And that's definitely a thing when you're first starting to date, when you're first having these kind of connections with people, you go in presuming, oh yeah, we're both, we're both trying to figure this out. Or, oh no, the other person definitely knows more than me. But if you're thinking that you're both on the same page, then you discover... What? No, I dated seven girls before you. It's a real shock because you're suddenly on a whole different playing field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's just one of those things that like, uh, I don't, I've never quite understood that impulse. I, I guess maybe I'm too old at this point to remember if I ever felt that way. <laughs> but like, yeah, it is one of those things where it's like, this is especially true with Yuri, I find, that 
a lot of stories are essentially coming out stories or like first relationship stories. And Mm -hmm. that is, I find that very fraught in terms of like, it really does continue on the whole purity is paramount for women in a way that like, you can't even have like, it's become more common now that a character may be having their first attraction or like first, not first attraction, but like first relationship with someone of their same gender. But in their past, they have had attractions that they just didn't acknowledge or didn't understand at the time. But a lot of the times, like you'll see stories of like, Oh, I'm 30 years old. I'm in an office. I, just realized that this other coworker of mine is very cute. I've never been interested in romance before, but all of a sudden now I am. And I've always felt like that's, I mean, I'm sure some people have lived that for real. And that is not like, you know, contrived as much as I feel like it is, but I feel like it happens so frequently in Yuri stories that it does feel extremely contrived. Uh, especially when the characters are older, because we're now seeing more stories about working women and their relationships rather than just, you know, adolescent relationships, which I mean, of course, if you're 14, you probably haven't dated much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) these days. Um, Or like whatever dating meant when you were 12, if you had like a quote unquote partner when you were 12, some people, some kids I knew were like items, but I didn't know what that really meant in that at that time. Mm-hmm. So I very much had a coconut like childhood event that uh, I could tell you that story if you'd like. Sure, if you're comfortable. Yeah, totally. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure many of you can probably pick up on this from voice or just being familiar with the network. Trans woman. And uh, back when I was a 14-year-old lad, I had been in a very... I'm going to describe this with the benefit of hindsight, because as someone who was not very socially aware of things and was constantly tripping over themselves at that age... I didn't see a lot of this until I picked up on a lot of things after I came into a social life in high school. There was a girl who I had been basically rivals with. We were put in a lot of the same classrooms because alphabetically our last names were directly next to each other. Mm -hmm. And so we'd get sat next to one another when they're doing standardized testing. We get put where the books are all laid out in the classroom. We're sitting next to each other. We even jokingly screwed around with the bubbles on our tests one year. And it's like, well, I'll put myself down as a girl if you put yourself down as a boy. And then both of us next year were like, oh, shit, they actually um, didn't check those bubbles. So now <laughs> both of us just got assigned texts for a female and a male, respectively. Whoops. Oh, boy. <laughs> also, totally no egginess there. Um, but, yeah, very smart kids etc. And then we get to junior high together and that is when they start having dances and Mm. what she thought she would do 
was surprised me by going to the dance, but just saying, like, I don't know, I think I'm busy. And I never thought anything about she was busy for an event that was held during school hours. What the fuck did that mean? <laughs> but yeah, turns out she bought tickets to this. I took her at her word and was like, oh, well, she's not going to that. So I will just also not go to that. And I sat in the little study hall because I didn't pay for my ticket. Mm-hmm. And then I come and it's like, hey, she's not here. There's only like three of us in here. And what this led to is she was clearly trying to surprise me and wanted to dance with me and was probably going to ask me out. And what I took about this was that I would confront her in the hallway the next day and get into a screaming match with her and call her a bitch and get kicked in the dick for it because I completely misread everything and made a scene and embarrassed her in front of the whole school. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. Uh, I mean, like, that. that is an anime plot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, in hindsight, I wince a lot at my younger self because of how many things I did not put together until I was much older. But, who boy... Let me tell you, nobody fucked this up like junior high school me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when stuff like that is the reality for some people, like, you could totally get where Coconut is coming from, where she's like, oh, you you really don't want me, you want somebody else, you think I'm somebody else, I'm just a replacement. Uh, that, That sort of line of thinking. Which, I mean, it does feel really random in this very compressed show because we've never seen, we've never known Kokono to be attached to a person other than Yayaka in a friendly way. So, of course, this is going to not have any precedent. But, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, mm-hmm. boy. Yeah, no, n- nothing screams like early adolescence, like not knowing how to interact with someone you like and <laughs> totally screwing it up yeah boy I, I don't know if i have any stories that are like that good that are like worth telling but yeah no i've been there <laughs> i mean I, I didn't get kicked in the dick for it but <laughs> i got kicked in the dick for a lot of things at that age uh oi oi i could also tell you about my first actual girlfriend who was my introduction to furries in the early 90s. Oh. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Did, did I tell you that I sort of dated a Wiccan once? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, that was that was an interesting experience. Just because, I mean, it was a summer camp thing. It really wasn't going anywhere. But, like, it was also very funny because it was one of my... I wouldn't say like the earliest, but like one of the earlier experiences with like um, sort of queer people and queer communities to some degree, because like this was a summer camp I had gone to three years in a row. That was my third year there. And this was the first time that like some people that like came back the other year also apparently had came out in the interim, which in retrospect made a lot of sense for the first time I met them. But they came back and, uh, like, the first time really seeing people who were, like, aggressively, openly queer. Uh, like, mm-hmm. I know a couple of kids got into trouble because they cross-dressed to uh, the mess hall during Parents' Day. Like, nice. that was a thing that happened. It ruled, to be honest. Like, one of the dudes, like, 
who was like very much a like metalhead looking dude, but who was bi, like went in with like the combat boots, but like uh, a pink like tutu dress that he borrowed from one of the other uh, other girls. Like they did like a outfit swap. Like th- that ruled. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, this was like one of the cases. Like she was uh, the girl I was involved with was bi, and it's like okay, it's okay for you to be with another person. Like we'll be, we can be open, but only if it's the same gender. Like, <laughs> I'm like, that's not fair. Yeah. <sighs> it was funny. I mean, granted, it wasn't a very emotionally deep relationship or anything. It was like 10 days long, but still. Uh, and, and she was wicked, which I thought was very funny in retrospect. Uh, any other themes we want to go into? I mean, I think the multiple facets thing, we touched on it lightly. Um, I don't know how much deeper we want to go into that. I just think this show does a poor job of using that because especially with Mimi, Mimi gets it the worst because there's the good Mimi and the bad Mimi and they're so extreme and then they don't really use it to good effect because, yeah, bad, you know, over-possessive Mimi is the antagonist. But, you know, she was an absentee mother for not not intentionally, but like she wasn't around for most of Kokona's life. And the metaphor of her, I don't know, representing society, wanting to impose rules and make all the choices for, you know, their children, like it kind of falls flat because she really wasn't a presence. She just comes in in the last minute and is so extreme for a character that otherwise should be very meek and kind and, you know, accepting. And then of course, like it turns out that the final turn that like kicked coconut into self-actualization is just nice Mimi showing up and saying, just, just make your own decisions, please (laughs) do your thing. Here's, here's the, here's the solution to your plot arc. Helicopter mom away. Yeah, exactly. Like she solves the problem as much as she creates it. It's so weird. Like I would have liked this a lot better if Kokona realized it and grabbed it for herself. Like she didn't need her mother's permission to do that. I think my version of this show focuses a little more on the conflicting facets thing. And I suppose when we're thinking about it, that's another way to read the giant gem. The Yayaka fight takes place in differing facets. Yep. But I also think this is this. The show doesn't really dive into that so much as it kind of bats at it like a cat with a new toy mm-hmm. that then gets fucked up on the catnip in it and doesn't come back to it for weeks at a time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I would have been okay with part of the story being that you can be multiple things or you can have multiple elements to your personality and they don't necessarily have to be perfectly aligned with each other. Right. Like, I think that's something that a lot of people wrestle with, of, especially when they're young is that I need to be one person. I want to be one kind of person or like one kind of thing or live one kind of life. And one of the things you learn as you grow up is you could do whatever the fuck you want. Like, Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like looking back as we were talking about, like looking back on adolescence and shit, like I was a weird high school kid because I was both a nerd, a jock and like a scene kid all at the same time. And I mean, I have a bad habit of carp- uh, compartmentalizing different like 
those different things and like not letting them touch each other. It got weird when my like friend groups from one would talk to my friend groups from the other, but like, that's not bad per se. Like there's nothing wrong with having things that don't necessarily make sense, you know, altogether, you know, we're all complex people, but this isn't really a story about becoming a complex nuanced person really. So like, it does kind of feel like that they're just kind of taking maybe at like the most, simplistic fashion they're taking the Jungian shadow thing and saying you have you know <laughs> there, there are two memes inside you <laughs> you know there's the the good one and the bad one so they're both you so you have to deal with that but uh yeah it doesn't do a good job of saying you need to accept the uglier parts of yourself and work on them which I think well, is what they could have done I think the other thing is that only comes up in full through Kokono's parents because yeah one of them goes all right shit sucks it's evil time and the other one shuts down any possibility of that when tempted with it very dramatically and brutally mm -hmm. and because it doesn't come up through any other characters it instead turns what could be an interesting aspect of the darkness of pure illusion into the masculine is powerful and knows what is right. The feminine is emotional and goes <laughs> off the handle. A lot of bad implications because only yeah. those two people. Yeah, Papikana I, I mean, is never offered this choice that we see. Yeah, it's like Papikana is like too simple to understand it or to like even know that choice exists. Yayaka is not offered this choice in all her temptation. None of the twins are there, although they're flat enough that they kind of probably wouldn't do anything with it until the last episodes. Yeah. It's very interesting how the more I think about this series, I know throughout it we were saying, yeah, the 13 episodes is the perfect runtime for this. It would only drag on. I think if the space was used to dive in and double down on one or two of these themes, this would be a stronger show at 26 episodes. Yeah. Yeah, I think... I mean, I I don't know if I'm on record saying this, but I've said this a lot in other conversations related to these kinds of stories. Like, I am way more interested in how relationships work and build and how two people learn to, like you know, get along or understand each other or like, you know, that part of, you know, if we're talking like romance or, you know, stories like this, like that part is more interesting to me. The getting together, like that's all fine and good. And I can understand the appeal of that. But I mean, this is why I love how do you, how do we relationship? Because it is all about that. It's literally the girls get together immediately. And it's how do we navigate being in a relationship and not being able to communicate right or having a lot of emotional baggage or, you know, dealing with like the realities of what it's like to be queer in modern society. You know, there's so many bits and minefields and there's a lot of minds that blow up in their face or they blow up at each other's face. Like that's, that's what makes that series so good to me. And Eventually, I'll, I'll get my second volume. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm like, it's killing me that I can't talk about it with you because, like, 
it gets so good. Uh, I love the first. It's just, I bought the first so many. And if I didn't have that pre-order in place for when it comes back in stock, I would just pick it up next time I saw it at a bookstore. But I've paid for it. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the multiple facets thing. I mean, I would be much more interested in how do you process and understand your ugly impulses because everyone has them, right? Like that is definitely something that everyone wrestles with. And especially people don't know how to wrestle with when you're a teenager. And a lot of this is new to you and scary. And, you know, teenagers have a habit of lashing out because of it. Right. Like they're notorious for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, adults are notorious for that. Like people just not always know how to process or deal with those things. And like, this could have had, an element of that, of like the things that are dark and scary. Yeah. Maybe some of them are destructive and you need to like keep them in check, but there's a healthy way to do that rather than, you know, become a super domineering parent or whatever. Women starting HRT in their late thirties who are starting to, you know, (laughs) have those mood swings that they suppressed for years to have to learn about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it's not interested in that, which is unfortunate because I think there's set up for it and it may have been a stronger thing to communicate rather than whatever it is that they did here. They're just saying people are can be complex. And and I think Poppyka undercuts it. Oh, she absolutely undercuts it because she has no darkness inside her. She's too simple and or pure, depending on how you want to read her. And mm-hmm. so we have a whole episode about the different ways that she can be to Kokona, but it's really just asking Kokona, what do you want out of us? I'm yours. Yeah, like, <laughs> do whatever you want with me as long as I'm there. She's down. Mm-hmm. Which is like, uh... We don't even explore what that means about Kokona either. Yeah, because we don't really see her choose what she want, likes about Papika or like say, this is what I want from you. It's just all we get is I want to keep going on adventures, which, okay, fine. (laughs) I don't. That's not really a decision so much. I mean, it is, but, you know, it's not really concrete in a way. It's just I want to keep spending time with you. Okay, fine. I don't think the structure works for every series. I don't think this is a golden rule of writing, but I think that a thing that I've come to appreciate more as I become more of a tokusatsu fan and dig through Kamen Rider, there is a structure that multiple series in that franchise use where episodes come in two-part arcs regularly throughout the show. That's the majority Mm -hmm. of things when you're not in a major turning point. You're not in an end-of-season break, whatever. And so... It gives a lot more room to have rising tension and play with a cliffhanger and explore things in more depth. And that's also doable because these are usually 50 to 52 episode shows. Yeah. So you have more room to play with. And also that means that you don't have to write 50 individual plots. You have to write 20 something to 30 something individual plots. However, it also means that there is a way to do theme, payoff, theme, payoff, Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you would have to close loops. You know, it can't have a single. I mean, unless you have a like a macro arc underneath that that all of these smaller arcs build towards. And that's usually how they do it. There's a yeah. main conflict, but also there's your story of the week, and it doesn't always have to be a kung fu bugman fight. But sometimes it's like, hey, this side character is going to have an arc for a couple of episodes because it turns out they're not just plot candy. They're here and we're going to develop them and we're going to do things. Mm-hmm. It's it's a structure that, again, not universal, but I feel like some of these problems might have been better if we had that second series of 13 yeah. to pair off with stuff. Well, I mean, think about this, right? Like, why is Kokona afraid of making a decision? She doesn't want to regret her choice. And Salt's whole background is he made some choices that he regrets, and he's learning to live with it, and he's trying to atone for it, whatever that means in this context. But, like, Mm -hmm. his whole thing is, I need to live with my regrets. We could have had an episode focused on him, and his wrestling with that or his process of going through that decision to create whatever resolve he had to create flip flap and whatnot, or and it would have been an interesting foil. those two. So they have that two parter, that connection. Maybe that's how one learns. The other is her father, which I don't think yeah, happens. It doesn't. Uh, although not, not although, but uh, one small detail that, is one of those like blink and you miss it things is that when salt gets up at the end of like the last time we see him, he is smiling. He cracks a smile. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, there could have been a thing where, I mean, imagine all of the stuff that Kokoda could have wrestled with. If she found out this was her father, this was her father's story. Like there could have been more depth to her whole deal. You could have done that. Um, <laughs> would have taken more episodes. Was any difference between Papikana and Papika? Oh my god! Just uh. <laughs> I know if if Papikana like showed any sense of actual maturity as a character, well, that would have been nice. Yeah, that would be very interesting if she grew over the course of that episode of flashback, and we saw what she looked like before a regression. Yeah. Yeah, because all we get is she's just a 20-something version of Papika. Is, that's it. Like, I, I bet you, like, 20-whatever-year-old uh, Papika still probably sleeps in a ball pit naked. You know what? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, you just, there's no indication that she's done any emotional growth other than she's just now attached to Mimi. And something, something, Salt? Yeah. I mean... She, I don't know how she feels about Saul. I mean, I think, like, he's just a friend. I don't think she has, like, I think strong she has feelings to have, about him. I think unless she is lobotomized, she must have <laughs> some deeper emotional baggage about Salt just because of how tied in he is to Mimi. Well, and of course, like, the whole... <laughs> is this a uh, is is this a polycule or not? And well, clearly we know the relationship went one way. Uh, we are ambiguous about the other one. But also, we haven't even talked about pure illusion as as the sex metaphor in this episode. We haven't. 
now. Also, I have to say, you'd think there would be more of a bond between Papikana and Salt, because yeah. she got so involved with him to get to Mimi. Yeah, and the thing is, she when she gets her memories back, she doesn't turn to Salt and say, hey, by the way, I still hold some resentment for you leaving Mimi or like leaving her behind as when they escaped the first time. It's like, just that just, one line. That's it. It's just you're meaner now. <laughs> and it's like, that's the most childish way you could phrase that is just you. You look like you're mean. <laughs> I don't praise the writing of the very broken seven draft script original X-Men movie much, but I think one of the best interactions between two actors who were doing solid work is when you have Wolverine show back up after a fight with a shapeshifter and Cyclops has a hand <laughs> ready to blow him away yeah. and yeah, he's like, yeah. how do I know which one you are? And he just goes, you're a dick. He's like, alright, come on. That That's the funniest thing in that entire franchise. It's so or, good like because the it's movies. perfect yeah. characterization in a couple of yeah. lines. No quipping, no nothing. Two men going, how do I know it's you? Fuck off. All right, let's go. <laughs> yeah, because that's exactly how you would expect Wolverine to treat him. Yeah, he's not <laughs> going to pretend. No, you know it's me. We've been working together. It's Fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> absolute perfect relationship. Absolute perfect delivery. It's great. I mean, and like, not long earlier that scene, he flipped off Cyclops with his claw. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah. you can have a lot, you can have minimalist interaction that still conveys a lot. Yeah. Your meaner now is more questions than anything. Yeah, it's, again, it's one of those things where I wonder when somebody de-ages, do they emotionally de-age? Is their, like, ability to process emotion chemicals de-aged? And it just seems like she is a child in a child's body, but with adult memories or semi-adult, you know, young adult memories. So yeah. weird. But yeah, you mentioned uh, pure illusion as metaphor for sex, that the kind of thawing slash maybe orgasm metaphor of the lake melting and or refreezing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything going on in Wexkel's head in the Alice in Wonderland parody and needing to gnaw. Mm-hmm. And you have Wellwishia with her uh, bondage uh, harem. Yeah, mask as freedom, uh, just whooping on Boo-chan. How violence is a way to get closer to someone. Think about how good it felt. How the Her fist on... What's the line? Her, uh, I think it's uh, the sensation of her body on your fists. Yes. Yeah, I was trying to remember. But yeah, there's a lot of tension and BDSM undertones there. And again, a thing that multiple queer people use, especially in the current day, to try and figure out their feelings is depersonalization. Just loss of identity to play mm-hmm. around in a space safely. Mm-hmm. A mask does a lot for that. Yeah. And then, you know, in the Yuri hell, I mean, you could just say everything, but like, especially the finger sucking. But also we have a little of that, the episode prior where the island arc is 
all about intimacy in a lot of ways. And it's also our first clue that Papika has more experience than Kokona in ways we're not thinking about. We're just kind of writing her off as simple, but it's like, no, don't eat those berries. Hey, I come here all the time. I can keep us alive. I can. She's got skills. Mm -hmm. It's just you and Kokona are underestimating her because she constantly comes off so bubbly and giddy and childish. Yeah. Yeah. And that like. But the thing is, it would be something if that really did mask a deeper, you know, more thoughtful person, but it doesn't. (laughs) And I wonder what all the stuff we're talking about right now is first half of the series, first showrunner. Yeah. I wonder if there's an alternate build being planned before they change gears. I would imagine so. Like, it feels very much like studio interference at a certain point, which then led to, like, just imagine, like, if... um. I can't remember her name. Like, yeah, if the script writer of the first five episodes or so just was being told, you can't make this explicit, Yuri, you can't do that. (laughs) I know we just you just put out an episode that just said, yeah, like, screw all that class S stuff. Like, you got to keep living your truth. And then they go, we we can't have that. (laughs) And then she she leaves. Yuniko Ayana, by the way, Uh, like. Who knows where that could have gone? Because, right, a lot of the sensuality of the early episodes kind of like, okay, I want to say episode seven has it because it's exploring a lot about Kokoda's feelings. Like, you can't say that the horn succubus is not sensual, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a weird but phrase it's, to say. <laughs> it's interesting because I don't know that I would say there's a shift to male gaze that we kind of have the fan service elements the whole time. It's always there. Yeah. It's always there. Yeah. Things like the Island and the, the living together for a bit and the shared showers are also shown in a way that's not super detailed or fan servicey in titillating ways. It's just like, this is the state they are in. We're not dwelling on it. We're not showing you bits that or we're not zooming the camera on bits. I mean, when they're in the trash can yeah. together, that is so much not a horny scene. It's we both need to bathe. We have one thing and I'm going to make sure that I obey the letter of your wishes by keeping my back to you. Yeah, no, it's definitely about becoming more comfortable with each other, or at least Kokoda with Papika, and Papika learning how boundaries work. <laughs> uh, so, like, there is character growth in those scenes. I mean, granted, could have used without the pan up during the shower the first time, but, you know, big sigh. But at the very yeah. least, you know, it, it falls under the... It kind of falls under the kill a kill of the thing of like, okay, this has a purpose at least to the characters and not just the audience. The direction is what makes that one moment so weird because clearly the scene itself is not going for much of a tease, but I guess someone just wanted to spice up that event. Yeah. Her reaction to having someone 
that nearby while she's naked is not to go, oh, you saw me. It's, oh my God, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, and I guess if you're someone who is kind of repressing, you know, desire, you know, queer desires in this case, uh, and there's someone who could be someone you're attracted to who's going to be peeking in on you, you'll be extra embarrassed. <laughs> and I think that's something that the town of a bunch of Papikas doesn't really explore and nothing gets no. brought up again is that of all of the versions in that there's a lot of rapscallions mm-hmm. there's a couple of times where it's like hey i can be fashionable etc there's one moment of sensuality depicted as a temptation mm-hmm. yeah but there's also a lot of masculine qualities assigned to Papika in that episode. Yeah. Very, like, multiple forms are shown as boyish and given kind of a gruffer accent. We never do anything with that. You know, and I just realized now, too, or remembered that I'm pretty sure that... Yeah, yeah. uh, Little sister Papika and Kokona share a bath, and there's no real, like problems nope. with it it just happens because that's your little sister right it's no big deal yeah it's it's playing a very different angle and that doesn't upset her other than this is weird because i know you in a different way and that's the first one she sees yeah but we don't we don't ever close that loop it's just a thing that happens and then we start getting into the you said mimi once arc <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, it would have also this would have been a place in a longer series that maybe there's a conversation between Yayaka and Kokona where Kokona talks about how she feels about Papika and we flesh that out a little bit more. We close that loop of like, mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about her, but I have like I have these different things that are competing. And at some point I'm going to find the one I want to go with, but right now it's all new and scary. And that could be what pushes her towards the more rage-fueled events of the White Room. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because then she's, I mean, so far, like, we've seen Yayaka, like, feel threatened by Papika for sure, and sort of recognizing that her friend is uh, getting more attached to this other person. But yeah, I think that would have would have made that a little bit more potent mm-hmm. yeah but yeah in terms of the yeah the, the, the sex is metaphor or like pure illusionist sex metaphor thing like yeah it does get real weird when you're hanging out in your in your mom's um you know forest land <laughs> a little weird <laughs> yeah i think that also gets dropped after Probably after the Eero episode, although we're kind of using the nail polish as a metaphor for growing up, puberty, becoming an adult woman. Yeah, presenting yourself as, I don't know, available, I guess. Or drawing attention to yourself, at the very least, in an adult way. I think that's the last time it really comes up. Yeah, yeah, because then after that, it's just the the, the proto-Asclepius show. Yep. I don't know if there's anything else you want to hit uh, before we sort of talk about other series 
that are kind of related to this or like similar in some ways. Yeah, um, I think that's a good place to close this. But I do want to just point out some of the other things I discovered in research. I said I had one more surprise for you, and it's that. Uh-huh. What do you think the episode that had the second most divisiveness was? Oh, the second most divisiveness. Because, yeah, that that first one, the Mad Max episode, really split the people who were watching at the time. Oh, man, which one would have would it be? Would it be? Um, I, I kind of want to say it's one of the last ones. Like, I, I kind of want to say it's 13 because of the flashback. Uh, close. You would want to go with episode 10. Really? Yes. Okay. Hmm. I mean, that is where the macro plot comes in. That's where Mew Mew becomes a character, sort of. Yeah, 11 is more of her. But yeah, no, yeah. 10 is where a lot of people were just like, oh, okay. Yeah, because I think you start to kind of see the shape of what the background story or like, you know, the hidden part of the story is. And it probably doesn't align well with what you'd expect up to that point. And it's also where some people have the first realization that, wait, wait, Papika's Howl? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's also true, where it's like, and that oh, was no. And that was enough klaxons for some people to be like, nope, nope, getting off this train now, nope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, th- there's no way that it's not problematic. <laughs> like, y- you have to be really trying hard to be like, okay, it's not like literally the worst way it could go but it's pretty rough i still just want to know if that scene at the start of episode 13 was written as a result of backlash or if someone just came up with that at the last minute and went oh no Mm -hmm. (laughs) who knows or well we know who knows we who will tell us yeah someone find pure illusionist and like throw an egg at their house (laughs) please explain this uh failure of a show you put together five or six years ago (laughs) like that that nobody likes or remembers very well uh well anyway yeah we've sort of hinted at there are other series that kind of do a similar thing that like i wouldn't say go to these instead but like here are other things that kind of reminded us of the show or the show kind of, I don't want to say borrowed, but like is playing in a similar space. And the first one I mentioned earlier was uh kill a kill, which it doesn't obviously have the psychological side to it, but it's very much a story, you know, magical girl of some sort story about of, you know, a girl going into her adolescence and then having to deal with how society tends to view her as she ages and becomes supposedly sexually available, right? Like, and it's the thing that, like, you can't control when society is going to do that. The thing you can do is take control of it for yourself, which is, I, mean, I don't know if that's the best message. I think it's the closest one to one comparison you'll get because it's, yeah, teenager outsider elements of 
violence and magical girl culture linked mm-hmm. elements of the same questionable parenting yep. and how much that can ruin your life or try to control your life. I think it's the most one-to-one, especially in that it is also at times an animation showcase and doing mm-hmm. a lot of references to other works and has some of the inappropriate horny. Oh, yes. Tons of the inappropriate horny. And definitely, I feel like it, it's, I honestly think the ones in Kill a Kill are worse than Flip Flappers, but Flip Flappers, it clangs work. It, it like clangs in such a way that it feels even more uncomfortable. The, the softer style of Flip Flappers makes those moments seem even more jarring. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. While we're talking about that, I hate the art that is used for this as a cover on every service and on the Blu-rays. I don't know where that came from. They look so much more shoujo-fied. Bigger eyes, mm. the faces are in a different style. They don't look that way during the series. Um, I mean, I feel like, I mean, I feel like the cover doesn't really tell you much about what's going on. <laughs> I mean, I, I think like they have really large eyes, like that's they have large eyes, but like, yeah, look, look at this image again. Oh, I, I have it in front of me. I have the, the Blu-ray case yeah. in front of me and I'm like, uh, yeah, I mean, it tells you, like, it shows you the duality of the world and all that. And, you know, there's the. The two colors that make up the girls like transformed in the in the logo. But yeah, I mean, it, it is the kind of thing like it was very funny when Chris like Googled flip flappers and like the first thing he saw was like the bunny bite. And it's like that doesn't tell you shit about the show, but it definitely gives you a vibe that is way creepier than it's intended, I think. Yeah, I just as we got deeper in every time I would pull out the Blu-rays to put this on. It was more and more jarring for me to go, this art was clearly done way before you worked on the series. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm trying to think, you know what? I think you're absolutely right, because the pure illusion side of the image, the, the top half or so, looks like nothing we saw in the show. Like there's a purple door to a house with like rocks and set in the walls and there's another door on the side that looks like it's to a cabin. They're part of the same structure, but like, I don't, this doesn't look like anything that we saw in Pure Illusion. No, it's, it's clearly very early concept art. And I don't know how it became the image associated with the show. It's just weird in hindsight. Yeah. I mean, you certainly don't get any of the sci-fi elements in here. Like at best there's fairy tale stuff, but you know, it's very yeah, you're right. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I mean, yeah, Kill a Kill, I feel like is a good analogy. Also has, you know, some, I wouldn't say queer ships. Like, I, I, I think that there's a canon queer relationship at the end there. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the characters go on a date. There's something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's really, you know, Yuri Element's very light in that show, except for the weird um, psychotic assassin character uh, so, near the end. A very recent series came out that has some heavy notes of flip flappers. And mm-hmm. I'm going to make the pitch on this one. Okay. Wonder Egg Priority is a show that is 
about different individuals growing up, some of whom are queer, all with trauma in their life. It has unnecessary sci-fi elements that come in like a lead balloon partway through the series. (laughs) It has issues with production to the point that a whole fake episode had to be put in and people were going to the hospital trying to get it out on deadline because the director was not very good at managing a project. Mm -hmm. And it also has an ending that has become infamous for what were you doing? Oh my God, you did not think through these themes. Yeah. Like major content warning on this one though, if you ever decide to go into it, it's heavy. Oh, both of those shows that we just mentioned have some content warnings attached. Yeah. Yeah. Kill a kill. It's priority. Yeah. Holy crap. Oh yeah. Yeah. Heavy, heavy shit. And not the kind of stuff that I like to explore in my media personally. So like, as it was one of them that I had my eye on like week to week when people say, Oh, this is really good. And it's doing this interesting thing. And then I found out, like, oh, here's the stuff that it's wrestling with. And I went, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) And then the ending ended up being so incredibly bad that, yeah, wild. Absolutely wild. It's interesting because it feels like the same problem Flip Flappers has, where the first so many episodes are an interesting exploration of what society and pressure does to young people, mostly women, growing up in this space and how social media, something that wasn't really a thing for flip flappers kicks in and can add unexpected pressures. Yeah. And then when the turn happens, it definitely has a, all of your themes have unraveled. What are you doing? Stop element to it Mm -hmm. that we won't spoil here because this is not a wake priority show, but Woof. <laughs> you know, a part of me wonders that we are so used to, I mean, like big over the top anime endings, like things we would say capital A anime or like I've heard people refer to like trigger endings, like for uh, the, you know, people who made Kill a Kill. Yeah. And I feel like maybe the expectation has been built that there's going to be such a large upheaval and, or like the final fantasy, like that wasn't the final boss syndrome kind of Mm -hmm. thing that it turns a lot of these series into complete messes because they go, how do we like not one up this, but like five up this. And they just end up botching everything in the process because they want that big memorable twist or that big memorable end. Wonder egg is a show about young people for most of its run. And then it takes a hard right into, but what if everything was bad because Madoka Magica? (laughs) I still haven't watched that show. You can skip it. Yeah. I have a feeling it has some beautiful animation, but also I have soured on it over the ages because the writer is kind of a one trick pony in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you can kind of see it coming at this point. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's one of his shows that is the most mappable to many of his other shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's bum- It's a bummer when, you know, you just play the hits all the time. 
and the mm-hmm. hits is also kind of problematic. <laughs> For, well, at least from what I've heard about the movie. But that's my take on it. Yeah. So I think the next one is like me being a little cheeky here, but like I threw in Persona 4 in here. I guess 4 Golden is probably the one you should play, uh, which is like available just about everywhere now. Oh, I thought you meant the anime adaptation. Oh, we could say the anime adaptation because that counts, too, uh, because it's the same story. (laughs) Um, Yeah, God, but the anime, man, I watched both the Persona 4 and Persona 4 Gold anime. It wasn't worth it with the one exception of the Golden Episode 3 has a really nice touch where... There's a I'm not going to spoil it, but there's a bit about a video camera that's like sort of capturing sort of scenes of the characters kind of hanging out. And they do a real good job of like having touching moments with that. And then Mm -hmm. it later becomes plot important, which doesn't matter as much. But uh, yeah, the animation is it's basically the same story. The thing that I likened it to flip flappers about is just the idea of like projecting your fears or insecurities, you know, into a world that you can then enter. And then the whole Jungian thing with shadows, like very similar territory. I mean, Persona 5 does this too, but I think Persona 4 is a better version of that, at least in terms of when it's talking about the psychology of people and like how they handle their issues. But that's it's really tenuous. And like, look, I mean, you've probably played Persona 4 if you're listening to this, right? Like most people have. So I'm not surprised, but that was something that I I thought of. Like there's a there is commonality, like they're drawing from similar wells. I can see where it's in the same space, especially with using the unconscious and diving into memories and shadow selves, etc. Yeah, it, it I think it's a good way to look at it. I think yeah. it's a good comparison. Mm-hmm. I think it, you'd have a lot more of a leg to stand on than my next, which is talking about speaking of shows which are gorgeous, metaphoric-based anime porn about memories and identity, Kaiba, which is just getting a Blu-ray reprint from Discotech right now. Hmm. I've not heard of this one. So, it has a very distinct art style. It's by uh, Yuasa, who you might have heard from a few other big-name events lately. Mm-hmm. Guy's kind of on the rise. Devil Man Crybaby. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of his other works and they're not coming to mind because Kaiba would be the example I usually give. Very distinct. Very. Uh, I put it on for one of my housemates the other day and it got a sort of. And this is the 2000s look mm-hmm. instead of like the. Because it has a 70s style. It's floaty. It's sort of round in the way a lot of Tezuka art is. But. It's glowing in a neon sense, and it uses color, and it uses shapes, and it explores memory as a currency in this world, and something to be trafficked in. And it goes a lot of places that are interesting. It's visually stunning. It's a work that I would say, I don't know how fond I am of it, because it's... Sometimes Yuasa leaves me a little cold because there will be setup, and if the dominoes don't fall down for me, 
I'm just like, I see what you were going for. I don't have... I can't really critique this, but it's not my bag. Kaiba is sometimes not my bag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, for, first of all, really kind of annoying to Google because you Google Kaiba and guess what you get? <laughs> the dude from so, UPO. Uh, yeah. Have you seen here? I'll just link you one of the character sheets, which says so much about this. Yeah, I, I, I Googled Kaiba series and then I'm starting to see what you're talking about. Yeah, that, that is very like, 60s, 70s kind of vibe. Like, look at this. Yeah, that is that is very much of not our modern era <laughs> in style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I bet it looks a lot better in motion, like looking at screen caps. Oh, it yeah. doesn't it doesn't look very good. It, I mean, it looks very muted on purpose, you know, to give it that vintage look. Yeah, it has. But, it uses a lot of flat stylings, no yeah, not shading sh- for the no most part at all. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting because of that. Mm-hmm. Because that becomes part of it. all the effort is in the backgrounds, and sometimes there are just blank spaces in that '70s style. But other times, it's just these gorgeous sci-fi map painting style worlds yeah interesting well like yeah does it tackle like similar themes at all like or is it just kind of its own thing compared um when compared to flip flappers a huge part of it and why i make the comparison is that the main character is unsure of their identity and this is a world where you can sell trade steal do a lot of things with memory and identity. Uh-huh. So when you're going on that journey, there's a lot of different things you can learn. And does what you find out about the past matter if you're meeting these people to get to that goal anyway? Do you have that new self? Mm-hmm. I'm trying not to give away a lot about yeah, this. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I mean, might put this on the uh, on the list. I think it's worth looking into. It is pretty good, and I think the style does a lot to carry it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why Google is made today and Frank Day. <laughs> huh. Sorry, it's completely random. It's not her birthday. That was like two weeks ago or three weeks ago. But it is honoring Anne Frank. Strange. Huh. <laughs> There's probably a reason for it, but it seems really random. Anyway. Yeah, uh, I think that's about it for Flip Flappers. I think we're we're good to close on this one. I just think, I don't know if you have any. What, what are your final thoughts on this series? Like if you wanted to do a summation of your feelings on it. Flip Flappers is... I'm going to just steal from Nathan Rapin here, who... Are you familiar with his work? Uh, I am not. He was a writer formerly for the AV Club. He's gone independent over the years because every site that he went to got shut down in some feet of peak. So he was one of the first people to go to a subscription and then patron model. Does a lot of work. Has done a great book covering the entire history of Weird Al... <laughs> Excellent chronicler of bizarre, failed, etc. media. But he had a scale, and he started out 
and basically came to prominence with a series on the Onions AV Club called My Year of Flops. Every week, he would watch a noted bad movie, and he rated it in one of three ways. Failure, which is like, this is boring, this is dull, there's nothing here, this is terrible, not worth your time. Fiasco, where it's like, yeah, there's there's definitely problems, but this is interesting because you can see what they're going for, or they did something unintentionally campy, or it has it has redeeming value in an interesting way where I would definitely say it's not for everyone, but... And Secret Success, where it's like, yeah, no, this bombed on lunch, but turns out it's actually pretty good. It's just not of its time, or it's mm -hmm. underbaked, or whatever. I like that scale because it's a way to look at bad media. That's not just, is this the room... Is this mm -hmm. terrible, yeah. so bad it's good? Terms that are very crap. If you enjoy something, you enjoy something. If there's a story to something, there's some meat there to dig into. This is a series that has redeeming qualities. Yeah. Lands on its face at the end of it. But I wouldn't tell people to avoid it. This yeah. is... It's short enough, it's worth investigating. If you're in any way a fan of these genres, you're going to get some good content out of it, and you're also going to find yourself going, what the hell is this, at different parts. <laughs> but production-wise, it's not like anyone gave a half-assed performance. Yeah, yeah, I think it's like maximum effort for what ended up being middling quality by the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to shake the feeling that, like, I want to tell people try to watch the first two thirds and just ignore the rest or power through if you want, but don't think about it too hard. Well, <laughs> Maybe if you want that payoff for the characters at the very end, but even then, it feels kind of. I was so exhausted by the end of this. The second I time think the through. other killer is that we do shows with Ryan regularly, a person who yeah. is very. I must consume everything. I need all the lore and yeah. order. And when you're working with someone like that regularly, and we love you, Ryan, it's very easy to realize that uh, some folks will not take a just watch two thirds of its suggestion. They must <laughs> they know. know. Is it all worth the time or is none of it worth my time? Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth people's time as long as you can stomach the worst parts like <laughs> like like real talk like i suggest when i posted the first episode uh to um to the okazu discord and like erica friedman was like hey i may watch this show uh and started listening to the episode as soon as she's like oh yeah the, the robot flips up a girl's skirt and she's like nah i'm out and i'm like that totally understand that <laughs> uh yep. like i totally understand like if like Nunu is a fucking war crime. Like we we went hard on that is like a bad 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 design. And if somebody saw that and said I am not watching another second of this, yeah, totally get it. It's cut out of it's cut out of the final episode, but you forbade me to use <laughs> art of that character. I, yes, because it's that awful. Yes. Like, I don't want to post that. People be like, what are you into? <laughs> like, just by association. 
I get it, <laughs> but I think it's that. one of the ultimate summaries of this show swinging for the stars and the bat comes around to hit them in the nuts. Well, the thing is, it's not even relevant to the story is that the, the worst part about it is that it's completely superfluous as far as I'm aware, as far as you're aware, as far as I can tell like, yeah. when we've talked about this, like to have that be like a poster child, literally of the show isn't really representative of it, but it's also is partially representative of it. <laughs> it's very so odd. It's yeah. It's there's so... a lot of, again, I think this is a fiasco tier series, but also I would not in any way say that this is a void. This is not trash. This is, mm-hmm. it's not memorable in the same way that you're going to think about it and want to revisit it like a really good show every once in a while where you scroll yeah. past it on something or you find the discs cleaning up and you're like, I should rewatch this. It's bite-sized. It's got, you know, they overcooked some of the rice, but it's still a good meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's just the lows are so low that it does really knock off a point or two in my book. The thing is, whereas like the I, lows I, we're talking yeah. about are very brief fan service direction and one bad character design. That's far from the worst. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I think that like people... I feel like more people should watch this show. I just don't know if they'll like it <laughs> or at least like, yeah, I want more people to try it. And if they don't end up making it all the way through, totally get it. Like, I, I just still think like the first half is like not unassailable, but like very, very strong. Yeah, it's very again. It's very similar to Wonder Egg Priority. Yeah. Two thirds of that really good show. Mm-hmm. Once the tires fall off, though, we're talking Tesla grade burning car. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but that's why kind of why I wanted to cover it for the show, because it is something that doesn't get a lot of attention and it probably deserves slightly more attention, slightly more attention. And like nobody is talking about it, which I, even in spaces where I'm in, where are very Yuri focused, nobody knows about flip flappers. It's super interesting that like one of the very few Yuri anime original series is kind of a big question mark that like nobody gets, but yeah. And I think well, a lot of it. that it's comes not, it's from... not blooming to you. I get it. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I think, and I've been thinking on this, this is rare in that it's an original Yuri yeah. series. It's not an adaptation. Yep. And those adaptations don't always succeed in anime form. They're basically <laughs> meant as a one season attempt to juice manga sales almost exclusively that honestly like that yeah that's probably what happened i mean a lot of it is also they don't sell very well when they go to home releases and so they don't renew it for a second series like i know that happened with sweet blue flowers that probably happened with whispered words but like you know maria watches over us or or maria samagamitro like that went for a long time but also you know those are light novels it's kind of a different thing i don't know yeah that's you do hit a slightly different audience with that, because if you've already got a manga going, people can go to the one work or are more likely to try and steal the one work, depending yeah. on where you are. But it is a lot harder to get an untranslated and unlicensed 
light novel over here. So yeah, you're going to drag people in that way with an anime adaptation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you're going to want to see more of the story. Um, and there's mm-hmm. also more story to grab, uh, to be honest. Uh, I don't think... I don't think uh, like Bloom into You was finished when the anime finished, or it was just about to at that point. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, so I just a couple of quick shout outs. Uh, I want to shout out to Artelier Emily's posts and D, a.k.a. Jose Next Door's episode by episode recaps. Uh, those were great way to like I caught a lot of the things I mentioned in this episode. I I got from there and you know, some of these things I had read in the past and had forgotten about like all the flower stuff, but I was really good to add a lot of extra uh, contact to it. And like, I found both of those through anime feminist and chatty AF there. They did a retrospective episode on flip flappers where they talk about all of this in one episode in like an hour and a half instead of, I don't know, 10. <laughs> um, hey, we're getting yeah. better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there was a lot to unpack in this one. Like, this isn't like, I mean, I feel like we had less to say about Monster, even though there was way more of it, right? I think the issue with, I something we're going to have to work on going forward is that a non-episodic series will have a lot of dead air, but also we have to discuss the relevant things which come up yeah. so that people are familiar with them when they come up. Yeah, we're not expecting people like this is we're used to doing podcasts as a service at the very least. Like if you don't want to watch the show or play the games, you know, that we cover on this network, like you'll get that. You'll pretty much get all of it. Uh, We kind of work with that assumption. We might try to do that less or like, you know, gloss over more of the details unless they like become important. But I don't know. I mean, we're still working it out. There's a reason that our next couple of seasons are all very light, fanciful, episodic series. <laughs> yeah, no space for underway idioms here. <laughs> Not for a while. <sighs> but um, yeah, so thanks for listening to all this. Uh, like, this has a, been a weird journey. Uh, but we're glad that you stuck it out. Uh, so... On the uh, free feed, we'll be back in, let's say, a month, right? We're going to... Yeah, we could take one skip episode and then come back after that. Yep. And uh, we'll be back covering Lupin the Third, the woman called Fujiko Mine. And for patron backers, we'll be putting up bonus episodes on Project Eiko, the first movie, and Yurisei Yatsura 2, Beautiful Dreamer, uh, which, you know, both have, like, tenuous connections to flip flappers but i i think there's some connection you could say at least you could draw i will absolutely give you a bullshit speech about how both of them (laughs) ties in deeply to the themes oh yes yes (laughs) oh when you think about it though like biko is very yayaka huh don't you think absolutely (laughs) uh all right peace y'all Fall in love again with us next month. Bye.